Hey, I think we should encourage our worship team this morning. Didn't they do a great job for us? I have an extra Bible and an iPhone up here. Who would like to purchase these items? Anyone? Come if you could make a Oh, Mark. <laughs> How much you got? <laughs> there you go. Thanks, man. It was an exciting week. Pastor Brandon was up here, and so we got to hang out. He was just up here for a few days, so we couldn't get him to stick around for a Sunday. But what's awesome is we got a chance to go out and golf. Uh, I don't golf. I golf less than once a year, but we got out on the golf course. We've got a few pictures of us going out golfing. There's Mark. Uh, that club is like as big as my face. So there's a little discussion as to whether or not that should be allowed on the course. We've got a few more pictures, too. That's my club. It's an antique. I golf old school. The wood clubs I use are made of wood. I think we've got one more picture here. This is Pastor Dave looking for his ball. <laughs> not in the lake. But <laughs> so we were golfing, and we don't take it too seriously. Everybody got, you know, one mulligan per hole if they wanted to use it. Uh, and during the golfing, we were actually like messing with each other, like just as somebody was about to tee it up, we'd just kind of throw a ball, you know, to knock his ball off the tee. Uh, we had two golf carts, and so I was in one with Brandon, and as we were taking off, I leaned over into the other golf cart and stole the key. And then we zipped out of there, and I just threw it on the fairway and, and let him find it. <laughs> when uh, somebody was about to putt, uh, I think one of us was holding the flag, and just as someone was about to putt, they just dropped the flag right on the way to the hole to mess up with the person who was putting. Needless to say, it was fun, but the golf course is actually a great place to test your spiritual maturity. Am I right? It is. You get a guy out on the golf course and you get to see his real heart come out. It's especially good at testing your tongue and your word choice, uh, your word choice on the golf course is who you really are. Everyone can put on a good show on Sunday morning in church with the words, oh, good morning, good to see you, good day, wonderful. You get on the golf course and watch out. Especially when you shank a shot or top it or slice it or ground one up the fairway or forget a club two holes back, really happened. I'm proud to say that all the pastors managed to restrain our tongues, at least until we got back into the car. I don't know what happened when people got back in their car. But on the golf course, we all managed to rein it in. Uh, the Bible is teaching us that if you want to reach your full spiritual potential in Christ, you must tame your tongue. The Bible is also teaching us that if we, as a church, hope to reach our full spiritual potential as, as a congregation, we have to tame our tongue. And the golf course will test your spiritual maturity and your vocabulary, but guess what else? Church will too, especially when you get hurt, especially when you get overlooked, especially when you get angry. Church people can talk. And if we don't learn to tame our tongue, the congregation will suffer. We're going to learn today how to speak no evil, how to tame our tongue in the church. This is all part of James's uh, initiative to show us how to resist the devil and humble ourselves before God. So let's pray, and then we'll learn how to win the battle with our tongue. Father, thank you that you give us grace. Uh, every word will come into account on Judgment Day. So help us now to learn to show tremendous restraint with the words we use 
because we know that people are dear to you. So help us to speak with love. Help us to speak the truth. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Okay, we are in the book of James. You can turn there, chapter 4. Today, we're going to be in James 4, 11 to 12. There's just this two-verse section, only two verses, but don't worry. This is going to be a feature-length presentation. You can get situated, get your pen out, because there's going to be notes for you to take. Here we are in chapter 4, verse 11. Continuing on, it says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, uh, who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He shoots out of verse 10 where he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. Part of doing that is in relationships and the words you choose to use. Begins in verse 11 by saying, do not do something. Well, what is it? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So this is church folk. Jot this down. Number one, if you want to speak no evil, avoid speaking against others, especially in the church. Avoid speaking against others, especially in the church. If you read the context in the book of James, uh, the spirit of self-interest had polluted many of these churches. What do I mean by self-interest? I'm right, you're wrong. I'm rich, you're poor. I win, you lose. I'm smart, you're dumb. And men were walking around with this sense of superiority in the church, looking down on those who were less than them, or so they thought. And if you came to this church, if you visited these churches that James is writing to, you would just sense it, like, like humidity, like on your arms. You would sense it in the air that there were people floating around above other people. And their words were showing the truth. We have to guard our hearts against selfish ambition. That means we shouldn't be coming to church expecting more power than we have. We shouldn't come to church craving more praise. We shouldn't come to church expecting more respect we need to guard our hearts against resenting being overlooked or underappreciated in the church. We need to guard our hearts against being angry when we are held to the same common standard as every other believer. See, these are the pathways to a sense of superiority. And if you're going to avoid speaking evil against others, it starts in your own heart. The mouth as we've learned throughout the book of James, is a world of evil, full of deadly poison, set on fire by hell itself. James uses big imagery to describe just how serious you have to be about taming your tongue. And uh, sadly, the older certain people get, the more they've been in the faith, the more they conclude that they can have a thinner verbal filter. Well, I'm older, I'm wiser, I'm going to say it like it is. As if that's a mark of maturity, to have a thinner filter than ever. That's a mark of great immaturity. And the older you live, the stronger and thicker that filter should get. I had to go to the hardware store a few weeks ago because uh, on my honey-do list was our um, back door screen, you know, the sliding screen door, and one of our windows, the screens had holes in them. Uh, one of them was, I think a, a yard tool had punctured through it. So there's this big gaping hole in one of our downstairs screens. And then uh, the dog is the culprit for our sliding screen door, right? Stop it. 
And he keeps, you know, clawing holes in the screen. So I had to take it into the hardware store and say, can you please fix the screen? Because there's holes, the bugs are getting in. Uh, and, and so they just called me this week. They said the screens are ready. So I'm going to go pick them up and I'm going to put them back. And now the bugs won't be able to get in. And if you're careful, sometimes you will admit that suddenly there's a hole in the screen of your mouth and things are passing through that shouldn't be passing through. And then we have to humbly go to God's hardware store and say, there's a hole in the screen and things are getting through that shouldn't get through. Can you help me to repair the damage done to my mouth? It's called repentance. And every year we live, the Lord should grow the screen, should strengthen the screen, and should begin screening out more words than ever. Words prove faith. And we see here that a mouth problem is a faith problem. In James 3, 9, we'll throw it on the screen, it says, With it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Lord, I love you. You're the best. I hate that person you made. Those two things shouldn't go together. It says in James 2.5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? How out of line is it that I would speak against others when they're supposed to be my brothers and God has chosen them to be heirs of the kingdom with me? Avoid speaking against others. It says in verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers. Uh, the point there is speaking down or speaking against. It's just simply you speaking in a way that is against the person who you're talking to. Uh, give yourself a little checkup. How are you doing on some of the common sins of the tongue? Uh, making the list in the Bible frequently would be gossip. Gossip means you are a person who passes along information that in the end is not building up the other person. Oh, it can be true. Well, it's true. But it can be hurtful or it can be disgraceful that you would take that and that you would pass that along. Gossip is described in the Bible as being a morsel like chocolate tasty. And if you hunger and lust and crave gossip, and then once you have some, you go and you feed it to your friends. And Oh, guess what I hear? You get the attention because you have gossip. It's sin. You can sin with your mouth. And you can sin with your ears if you listen to that. Want to know what it looks like to sin with your ears? Here's what it looks like. Want me to do it again? I'll do it again. Watch. Here's what it looks like to sin with your ears. It's letting things in that shouldn't be getting in. No screens on your ears, no screen on your mouth. It's sin. And if you're speaking against others, or if you are listening to someone speaking against others, it's time to take the screen in for repair. Words come from the heart. It's not a vocabulary problem. It's a heart hang-up when words get out that shouldn't get out. And are your words just wild and untamed? The way you talk to people in your life, I mean, is there no restraint? Um, that might call your salvation into question. Or have you just gotten slack? Have you let the, let the holes pile up and done nothing to change that? You know, God upgrades my verbal filter every year, i got to tell you. The way that I talk to my family, He convicts me and teaches me and grows me every year. My kids continue to age. And their vocabulary increases. 
and they get really good at talking persuasively. And so I have to be careful how I talk back to them. And as they improve in their ability to try and get what they want, especially when I'm saying no, I have to improve in my patience and how I talk to them about what I will say yes to. Same thing in, in marriage. The longer you live with the same person, the, the easier it is for you to reduce the quality of communication they get. But it should be getting better every year. It takes work. It takes humility and repentance. I've had, over the last six months, if I had to like list the number of emotionally charged conversations I had, either with family or with church people or out in the world, there's a list. Sometimes emotionally charged conversations face-to-face, other times by text, right? You ever start to text someone and you're texting, 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 and then you're like, I need to redo that one. Delete, 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 delete. And then see, you're, you're angry with someone, right? And you're texting them and then you delete, 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 delete. And how many revisions does that go through before you hit send? And the other person is just watching the dot, 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 dot. What's he going to say so that I can say it back? Right? And, uh, and as we grow and mature, the number of rough drafts that we draw up before we send the final draft should become more. There should be more rough drafts. We used to call them in elementary school sloppy copies. All right? And in your mind, when your spouse says something and you're like, you need to be going through and ripping up and crumpling up like 10 or 20 sloppy copies before you finally produce the masterpiece of what you actually say. And it should reflect God's work in your heart, teaching you to slow down, be kind, listen first, talk second, avoid speaking against others. It says the word brother, brothers, brother, like three times here. And then it uses the word neighbor in verse 12. Brother, brothers, brother, neighbor, family, family. We're supposed to be family at its best. But sadly, sometimes church is not at its worst. Avoid speaking against others. This is God's heart. He's challenging us in our family, our marriage, in our church to avoid speaking against others. Speak no evil. Let's read on. He gives us reasons why. Why we should stop speaking against others. So in in verse 11, it says this. It says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Then it says, The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Write this down. Avoid speaking against others. Number two, stop attacking your Bible. What he says here is when you're attacking a fellow Christian, you are simultaneously attacking the Word of God. An assault on a brother in Christ is an assault on the law of God. You can't go after the brother without going after the law. This is an interesting line of reasoning. Let me ask you this question as he paints this picture of a person who's assaulting or attacking the Word of God. What would you do if in your small group, one of your small group members just right out slapped the Bible and then threw it on the ground and then kicked it across the room? through the window out into the backyard. How would you react? I think there'd be a little mutual ministry happening right there. I think there'd be a little talk with that person about how they were treating God's word in paper form. Am I right? Well, 
if they speak against someone else in the church, that is precisely what they are doing to God's word. That's the point here. Attacking others is attacking the law of God. Follow his reasoning carefully here. It says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. The law in the book of James means the Old Testament scriptures as fulfilled by Jesus. So they had the Old Testament in scroll format in Jesus' day, but Jesus came along and said that he has fulfilled the law. And so the teachings of Christ fulfill the Old Testament law. You sum it all up and you basically get what we call the Bible or the Word of God. And this is where we get our morality. Morality comes from God's nature. He is a just God and our awareness of justice is derived straight from His soul because we are made in His image. We know something's right or wrong because He's a just God. We're made to be like Him. When we see something that's out of, that's not right. You're being like God because you're made to be like Him. And how does God reveal His justice? Well, He does it through His Word or through His law. This is how God reveals His justice. This is the standard by which everyone will be judged and measured in the last days. God reveals His justice and His character and His nature through His Word or His law. Uh, his Word has authority over every person because they are a creature made by the judge. They are made to be like Him. So in God's Word, God says, this is what it's like to please me. This is what it's like to imitate me. Here is how I have shown you myself. It's through His Word. His Word has come down in many ways through prophets, priests, kings, through, I mean, Moses walked down the mountain. It was actually inscribed in stone, but sometimes God said, write this down, and it was written on a scroll. The point is, the law of God reveals the nature and character of God. And so if you demean others with your words, you're dismissing parts of the Bible that call for love. You're speaking against the Bible. So I have here a tube of whiteout. Maybe the, maybe the youngins here don't know what whiteout is. This is whiteout. Back in the day, we used to write on paper. We used to type on paper. When we made a mistake with our pencil or pen, sometimes we would cover it up with whiteout. I was in college when the internet actually started to become popular. So we didn't really have a computer my first few years in college. I had to use a typewriter. And with the typewriter, uh, if you messed up, you had to reach for the whiteout. Then you had to backspace, and you had to type it over the whiteout, right? And then we found this fancy typewriter that actually had whiteout built into the machine. So I could type, 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 and then if I made a mistake, I'd hit erase and it would go with whiteout. It would white out the letters for me. But if the mistake was three lines ago, it would white out everything all the way back to that mistake. It was pretty tedious. But anyway, imagine if you see another small group member. I'm picking on your small group members today, sitting in their small group, and they go like this. And they actually start covering over parts of their Bible. What would you say? You can't do that. 
That's God's word. Someone who is speaking against their brother is eliminating portions of Scripture calling for love and saying they're not going to do that. They're covering that over, and they're not going to apply that part of their Bible to their life. An assault on a brother is an assault on your Bible. You can't get on your phone and tear apart someone in your church and then sit down and have your quiet time with Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's kind of funny to think about someone actually speaking against the law. You know, the one who speaks against a brother speaks evil against the law. That's kind of a funny thought here. Like, like imagine someone actually saying something to someone in their life. Like, shut up! You're dumb and good for nothing! And then saying the same thing to the Bible. Shut up! You're dumb and good for nothing! That funny thought of actually speaking evil to your Bible... It's what James is using to say you're actually doing that. Whatever you say sinfully against someone, you are saying to your Bible, I wish I never saw you again in my life. Just try that. The next time you sin with your tongue and say something wicked or evil or mean to someone or about someone, then go and say that same thing to your Bible. I wish they would never come around again. I just can't stand you. I can't stand you, Bible. See, once we understand that God takes our words to his children personally, we understand that saying something against a loved one in Christ is saying it to God. Then we'll be very careful how we talk to people he loves, people he died for. Stop attacking your Bible. We find evidence of spiritual maturity or immaturity in the mouth. And when a person learns how to love speak peacefully and kind, especially when they're mad or sad or upset, we see maturity. Has God convicted you recently about sins of the mouth? Shouting! Or being snobby? Or arrogant? Or deceitful, lying? Has God convicted you? If God hasn't changed your mouth, your faith hasn't saved you. There should be a phase one and two and three and four and five and ten construction projects that have gone on right up in here, if you're truly saved. He'll never stop building you up in what you say. Prove you love God's word. Prove you honor his law. How? By what you say to his people. Show everyone what you think of this book by how you talk to the people sitting in this room. Because if you run them down or criticize them or undercut them or backstab them, you're at war with this book. Wow. That's humbling. All right, first, avoid speaking against others. Second, stop attacking your Bible. Third, jot this down, put down the gavel. Put down the gavel. He continues his line of reasoning in verse 11. We're still in the same verse, three points from the same verse. And he says here in the third part, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So don't speak evil against brothers. Why? Well, because if you judge your brother, you speak evil against the law. You judge the law. Then if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Meaning you have risen up in authority over this book and you're not a doer anymore. You're a judge. I actually somehow managed to get myself a, a gavel. Somebody loaned me this. And... Uh, I like the way this feels. I like the way it sounds. Court is in session. 
I'd like to call hmm, Jake Teasinga. Please rise. The trial of Jake Teasinga. I'm not sure that I'm totally happy with you right now. I'm thinking back to the last time maybe you said something nice to me and not sure I could remember that and uh, haven't heard an amen to my sermon all morning. So uh, the honorable me, myself, and I finds you guilty of offending me. So you can be seated and just sit there. Who's next? This is empowering. And there are people who come to church with one of these every week. Hmm, what do I, what do I think about Pastor Jeremy and how he's doing with those rugrat teenagers? I'm not sure. I've got strong opinions. Court is in session. The Honorable me, myself, and I will render a verdict by the end of the morning. Then I'll go and tell people the verdict and hand, hand down my, the judge's opinion. Now, I'm no longer here humbly to learn from God. I'm no longer here to love. When I'm bringing this to church, I'm a judge. I'm a critic. And, and I'm not here for this. I'm over this. I'm above this. I'm the one sitting on the bench. Boy, James is warning us that if we fail to love with our mouths, what's really happening is we are taking God's place as the rightful judge in the church, and we have no business doing that. So we have to put down the gavel. He's describing here a lawless judge. He says here, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. This is a person who has no business, no interest in keeping the law. He's using it to his advantage. This is a crooked, no-good scoundrel of a, of a judge. And the thing is, love should actually, as we see here, love should spring forth from the law of God. Because God's law teaches us how to avoid hurting ourselves and how to avoid hurting others. The point of the law is to teach us how to love God and love others. That's what love comes from. Love comes from the law. In, in fact, in James 2.8, it says the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. All the rules and regulations are all about teaching us how to love God and love others. But some churches try to throw out the law and bring in the love. They disregard the Word of God, claiming to be more loving and Christ-like. They think it's more loving to let go of the law, and they're wrong. And then there are other churches that try to throw out the love and bring in the law. People need to hear the truth. These are legalistic and cold and harsh churches, and they think it's more righteous to let go of the love of Christ. These people need a stern talking to. Both of those churches fail because they don't understand the cross. Uh, the cross is where the demands of the law of God were fully met in the Son of God so that the love of God could be unleashed to sinners like us. Hey, that's great news. When you understand the cross, you understand the law of God had to be fully met. It was in the Son of God. Only then was the love of God unleashed. We can't let go of the law or the love, because if we let go of either of them, we've let go of Christ himself. Now, I've got great news. 
I'm happy to report that after checking our Constitution, which we are celebrating in Independence this weekend, we live in a country that was founded upon the law of God. I'm excited about that. That makes me want to blow off some fireworks, but they're illegal in Illinois, so I won't. The Declaration of Independence says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, anyone can see it, that all men are created, created, equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It's written on our birth certificate that God made us, he's the one who gave us equality. That's what makes us uh, deserving of fair trial and justice and of love and respect. Second president of the United States, John Adams, uh, made this clear. I read a book about John Adams. It was a Pulitzer Prize winner by David McCullough. I highly recommend it. Uh, but it's so clear, the Christian foundations of our country, when you read the founders. John Adams said this, The doctrine of human equality is founded entirely on the Christian doctrine that we are all children of the same Father, all accountable to Him for our conduct to one another, all equally bound to respect each other. You know, this is amazing to celebrate this weekend. Our country is founded on the law of God, and out of that comes the love of God. We're supposed to love and respect our fellow citizens because the law of God says so. That's great, and our founders understood that. But I think we, uh, we see, at least on the Supreme Court and other, in other places of our, go our government, we see a fight now. Because some of the judges on our Supreme Court are saying, we have a constitution already, it's a great one, let's uphold it. And others are saying, no, we need a new one, let's rewrite it. They're standing up above over the law. It's in this sense that James describes the evil judge who stands on the law, doesn't follow it, sees it as his job to rewrite it, to suit himself. And we're watching what happens in our own country when that plays out, when judges judge the law as being unworthy. And we see that in our country, the government is letting go of the law of God. They're doing it because they say that it will produce more love, but it won't. You need the law of God and you need the love of God or you let go of Christ himself. When God's law is abandoned, the result is moral anarchy. But here's the thing, this is true in the world and that's plain as day right now. Moral anarchy, shamelessness running rampant, and it's true in the church. The Bible here is more concerned about the church. If we let go of the law of God, if we let go of the love of God, moral anarchy will result and the church will fall apart. It's true when law breaks down, love breaks down. And uh, <laughs> we saw that actually this last week when uh, my son Jared played in the championship Little League game in uh, PBO. Here's a picture of Jared. They actually pulled off a victory in the three-game series. 2016 Mustang Division champion, first place, Jared Alexander Hall. Does he look proud? He looks so proud. All right, but, but uh, parents have strong opinions of what's happening on the baseball field, self-included. So there we were in the stands, and uh, I think it was game two, because we shut him out game one. Game two, and the other team, the Blue Jays, had the bases loaded, somebody up at the plate, and there was one out. Uh, and so the guy hits into, uh, I'm not sure what it was, he popped out or he struck out or something, and uh, then all the kids started running off the field. The ump said, three outs. And I looked at Lauren, I was like, no, there's only two outs. She's like, no, they said three. And another parent was like, no, there's three. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, there's two. 
But they all ran off the field. And then I saw the coaches of the Blue Jays huddling up against the And the coach yells to the dugout, get back out on the bases. He realized there was only two outs. So what does this upstanding, fine coach do? He sends his three runners back out on the base, and he tells them to run in and score. Run the bases and score. Score, score, score. There's nobody on the field. And now our coach comes out. He's like, they're out of the baseline. If they went into the dugout, they're out of the baseline. Now there's this fight, and the parents are watching as the umpires and the coaches are gathered. How many outs were there? How many outs did you have? How many outs there? And they're telling their runners to do this and that. And the umpires were not taking control of the situation. They were just like, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. And so the coaches were getting loud and angry, and parents started standing up and sharing their opinions with the coaches. Of what well, They're out of the baseline. They don't belong on the... One woman had a pitchfork. I don't know where it came from. Just pulled it out of her back. Ah! Everyone was getting wound up. What's going on? Those runs shouldn't count. No, there's only two outs. So finally, do you see what happens when the rules break down and are not followed? We need law <laughs> to have love. And finally, the coaches made the right choice. Nope. All three runners go back on the base. All the fielders get back out there. Uh, and then we struck out the next kid, and it came to nothing. The point is this. We see it in the church and the world everywhere. When the law breaks down, the love breaks down. And God is warning us that the law must be upheld, and then the love should be pouring out. Boy, if the church fails to be standing on the law of God, if the church fails to be gushing out the love of God, our world has no hope of finding it anywhere else. We're a city on a hill. We're a light to the world. If we fail at love, if we reject the law of God, the world won't see the light of Christ. It starts with our words. It all rests on what we say. So we have to avoid speaking against others, we have to stop attacking the Bible. We have to put down the gavel and not be judgmental towards each other. Number four, write this down. We have to honor God as the only merciful judge. Verse 12 teaches us something about God. This is a motivation for watching every word that comes out of our mouth. It says in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. Lawgiver, meaning the law comes from him. Judge, meaning he's the one who's going to perfectly evaluate how everybody kept it. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? God is the only merciful judge. When you realize that he is the one who has the authority on heaven, uh, in heaven and on earth to render a just verdict for everyone around you, you can rest in his justice. But when you understand that you have grossly violated his law and you'll be held accountable for every single little and big sin, you realize that you need the judge to be merciful. If you need the judge to be merciful with you, that should make you merciful with others. In James 2.4, he says, Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? I will hand you a verdict about your worth and value in the church. How foolish that is when there is a great, mighty, holy, and perfect judge standing above you about to hand down a verdict on your soul. Who are we to judge? We have no business swelling up with pride and lording it over others. One scholar who I read this week said this, If we are really low before God, we have no altitude left 
from which to talk down to anyone. That's great. And the key to fixing your word problem is getting your heart humble before a holy God who's your judge. Understanding you'll give an account to him, that'll cause you to be very careful what you say to people who are also accountable to him. We have to honor God as the only merciful judge. This takes tremendous humility. Uh, a few weeks ago when we were at the animal kingdom with my son, and my father was there too, three generations of halls, there was a uh, kind of like a zookeeper there explaining how animals pick the alpha. And uh, he said this. He said, for the gorilla, you know, all they do is uh, they like, you know, have several rumbles and, and testings and and then over a period of time, they pick the alpha. And then everyone knows that's the alpha gorilla. And if he just looks up at the rest of the gorilla, they just need to scatter. And it was cool to see that. He said, that's different than the elephants. The, elephant, the elephants have one battle. And the winner of that battle gets to be alpha for life. And after he explains all this, we walked away. And my son Jared says, I'm the soon-to-be alpha. <laughs> to me and my father... I'm the soon-to-be alpha. And we both looked at that little squirt like, who do you think you are? I've been very careful to win every wrestling match since then because in his mind, he thinks I win one and I'm in control, just like the elephants. And, you know, the Bible here is basically looking at us and saying, who do you think you are? People walking around God's church thinking, I'm the soon-to-be alpha. Who do you think you are? Because there's already a great judge sitting on the bench, on the throne, and you are not him. There are two things that God will do. Jot this down. He will save those who love Jesus. It says he is able to save in verse 12. It says elsewhere in the book of James, he'll save those who love Jesus. It's those who love God. What that means is we are convicts, condemned under God's law, freed by the mercy of a judge, who chose to save us instead of judging us. All right, back to my gavel here. So what's going on is this sound <laughs> happened at your trial in heaven, and then God said, guilty, but he knows my son, so I'll forgive him. Case dismissed. And then, and then you <laughs> pronounce someone in the church guilty, worthless, Send him away. How foolish is that when the judge of heaven let you off and you send a brother to the chair? You can't do that. Because God didn't treat you that way. God treated you with love. He will save those who love Jesus. And the way you speak of others proves whether or not you know his grace. It's out of line when we fail to love those in the church. He frees us from judgment, treats us like family, then we condemn others to judgment and treat them like enemies. That shouldn't happen. He will save those who love Jesus. Write this down. He will destroy those who love sin. It says he is able to save, and now James warns those who won't give up their sin, and he's able to destroy. He'll destroy those who love their sin. This is a warning to unbelievers sitting in God's church filled with the pride of the world. God is able to to condemn, to destroy. What this implies is you being sent away from heaven forever and dwelling in eternal conscious torment in hell. God is able 
to do that to you. When you understand the power of his judgment, the justice that will be served, you should get low, immediately low, because he'll destroy those who love sin instead of God. This is also a warning to Christians to get low. If I'm modeling the world and being filled with those desires, James 5.9 says, the judge is standing at the door. You'll be in front of him before you know it. Christians will be evaluated on how they loved others. Somehow that judgment will affect your eternity. Christians aren't judged whether or not they go to heaven or hell. That judgment is done when you trust Christ as Savior. But you will be evaluated. And there's rewards in heaven. Your eternity will be affected by your obedience here. And in chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Hey, the judge is standing at the door. You can be forgiven of all of your sins, but it takes humility to get low before Him and to say, I have sinned, especially with my mouth. And there are some, perhaps, who have never actually bowed before the God of heaven, who is the judge of all the universe. Maybe you haven't realized that you will stand in judgment. You have no hope of earning your way into heaven. The only way you can get in is to understand that the law of God was fully met in the Son of God at the cross of Christ. If you trust Him as Savior, then the love of God comes into your life. It's the only way. I'd love to give you a chance right now to just get low before God in your heart. And to ask him for forgiveness. Let's do that together as we pray right now.